but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. This is episode two of our fifth season. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that? January 8th, 2015 is when we came up with this thing. I'd totally forgotten about, or I guess, quote unquote, anniversary until you brought it up. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we haven't really been tracking it until, until now. I feel like every year you're the one who remembers. <laughs> I'm good with dates. Uh, yeah, this is episode 146, and it is our Australian Open preview. A preview of the Happy Slam. A slam that will be decidedly less happy in light of the news from Andy Murray last night. Right. Andy Murray gave uh, a sad press conference yesterday, uh, a morning press conference, which is never really a good thing before a Grand Slam. And he said he cannot go on any longer with this pain. He's not able to compete at a high level. He's experiencing pain just in his day-to-day -day life. He hopes to retire this year at Wimbledon, but he's not sure he can make it that far. There were two parts of that press conference that were particularly sobering. The first, with Andy not even being able to get through the first question without leaving the room. He had mm -hmm. to leave the room because he couldn't compose himself to really finish answering the question about his hip. And then the second one was, well, okay, you're kind of kind of making your peace with it as a listener and a viewer. And you're like, okay, he says he's going to retire at Wimbledon. That makes perfect sense. And then the kicker, he says, if I can make it that far. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God. So one of the reporters asked, are you saying that this could be your final tournament? And he said, there is a chance. There, there really is a chance that this could be it. Uh, right now, he just seems so devastated that he has been trying so hard to get back into playing shape and to do what he loves most to do, and he can't. It's totally out of his control. Aside from more surgery, he's really tried everything to rehab this hip. He even said bending down to tie his shoes is causing him pain. So it's not just pain on the tennis court. The first sign of serious trouble for Mari at this event was that practice match that he played with Djokovic two days ago. Mm -hmm. We started to, I mean, I got reports on Twitter saying Mari has to retire down 1-6-1-4 to Novak. And I'm like, hold up, which tournament is this? Right. But it was it was just a practice match in Melbourne. And apparently for, from all accounts from the people who were there, it, it was really bad. Mm. And so the immediate thought to that was, well, is he going to play the Australian Open? Maybe he just needs some more time away. But according to Andy, this is something that he came to in December during his training block in Florida. Apparently one specific practice with Fernando Verdasco where the, the pain just kept ramping up. The more pressure he'd put on his body, the more tennis work he was doing is the more the body would not respond in a, mm -hmm. in a good way. And that's when he told his team, listen, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to have an end date, as he put it in that press conference. Right. So where we're at now is that he does probably need to get another surgery sooner rather than later. 
the next step for him is not a full hip replacement, especially at his age, at 31. These things only last, I've, I've heard, max 20 years now. It used to be 10. He will probably undergo something called a hip resurfacing, which I guess basically they put metal on top of the femur and the hip socket, which will alleviate the pain so he can, you know, go about his life. It's more of a quality of life thing versus regaining his career where it was. Mm -hmm. Sadly, it doesn't seem like that is an option now. It may be in the future, but now that's not really uh, part of the prognosis. We were sitting on the couch watching, what, Dairy Girls is the name of it? We started this this new show. Yes. That we show were, is so funny, by the way. We were having a great time. And then I looked down on my phone and uh, on Instagram, I think I saw Frith had posted a broken heart with respect to Andy. I was like, oh, well, I guess I said to you, I, I, I guess Andy has withdrawn from the tournament. Mm-hmm. Then I go to Twitter and then I see all these kind of eulogizing posts it's like, oh my God, like this is not just a withdrawal. Like, I said to you, like, has he retired? Like Andy has retired. Like this right. is this is crazy. And then you go and read all that stuff and it was, you're taken to the press conference and you watch the video of the press conference and it was, oh, it was devastating to watch. It was, yeah, it was agonizing. And it seems like across tennis, the feelings about Andy are pretty universally positive. His fellow players respect him quite a bit. Fans adore him, as we know. I want to move past like the doom and gloom for now and talk about Andy Murray in the present tense. And, you know, why does he inspire such, at this point, reverence? Like he's old enough to inspire reverence now. Mm-hmm. You know? This is somebody who, in the midst of playing in this greatest era, and really of the big four having the least success by some margin, save for the two Olympic gold medals depending on how much weight you want to put on mm. that, right? Like he, But he still has the standing. He's always had the standing. And a big part of why that is is because of how he's always stood up for the little folks. He's always combated bigotry and uh, brought people along with him. He's always looking to be inclusive, right? Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is the way he views and talks about women in sport, not just the WTA, we saw it with him hiring Amelie Moresmo as his coach and the way he would go to bat to defend her at all turns against the people who would blame her unfairly, as he would tell us, mm. for his losses. Saying, well, hey, whenever I lost a match routinely, like you would never have said that about Lendl. You would have never laid the blame at his feet, so why are you doing this? And he said that that experience in particular really opened up his eyes to the inequality in sport in particular. Over the years, he's been very vocal about equal prize money, about um, not overlooking the accomplishments of women. Specifically, I can recall the time when he was asked about being the only person to have two Olympic gold medals in tennis. And without skipping a beat, he said, I I believe the Williams sisters have four each. Mm -hmm. And he did it again when Sam Querrey made the Wimbledon semifinal a couple of years ago, I think it was, and he was asked, you know, what is what do you think about him being the first U.S. player to make the semifinal since, I don't know, like 1622? <laughs> and, and Andy, without, a, without skipping a beat and in his very monotone way, interrupted the interviewer and said, male player. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Like, there is such an authenticity about him 
that sort of uh, support for women's sport has always felt very natural. I think you can tell when someone is trying hard to say the right things mm -hmm. to ingratiate himself. And there was just something so authentic about Andy, about not just about his support for women's sports, but how he approached everything. His humor, uh, his support for his fellow male players, his friendships with male players. He was really, a, is a kind of a no bullshit guy. And uh, I don't know if that's a symptom of being Scottish. He's always been an underdog as well, which, as you know from being a gay person, that conditions you to view the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. Being Scottish, being a tennis player coming up in a system that really he shouldn't be where he is. You know, like he had the drive and dedication of his mother behind him. His mother who had to choose between her sons to say, well, hey, who am I going to invest in? Who's going to be more talented? Mm -hmm. You know, she was just as happy to have him stay at home. And he's like, well, look, I went and practiced with Rafa. If I'm going to be anything in life, I need to move to Spain. Right. <laughs> you know, like he didn't have the resources that young British kids now will have going forward because of his career mm -hmm. and the Murrays in general. But he has also, he and Jamie got to watch their mother build Scottish tennis from the ground up. Yes. And she, of course, would never, ever take credit for it. She's so humble about that. But what she did to advance youth tennis in Scotland and the United Kingdom is insane. Mm -hmm. And I hope that someday she is enshrined in the Tennis Hall of Fame as a contributor. But those two boys got to watch their mom do that, you know, so that inspired such uh, such respect for the sport and for women in the sport, I think. The rise of Andy's career dovetailed with the rise of Judy's as well. Mm -hmm. And so while he had those experiences of his mother being the driving force behind his career and his coach growing up, he, he was also able to see what she was doing on a day to day basis bringing girls into sport, bringing women coaches into tennis. Can you imagine those those Christmas dinners with him in his <laughs> Christmas pajamas, you know? Uh -huh. So what are you doing in the new year? Oh, I'm heading off to so-and-so to do a, a coaching clinic. We're bringing in like 200 young girls, blah, blah, blah. You know, these are this is his everyday, mm -hmm. you know, that we don't necessarily get to see. So that had to be a huge influence on him. But to your point about it being authentic and feeling authentic and us being able to tell when it isn't or when it isn't, it's like the opposite of the dog whistle in a good way. You know, like when somebody's oh, right. being... It's like a, a bat signal. Yes. When you're tuned to be on the lookout for, you know, all different kinds of discrimination or oppression. Or microaggressions. Uh -huh, you're able to appreciate when somebody is inclusive when they don't have to be. When they're inclusive in ways that you know and have lived an experience that everybody else isn't. And this is the context against which and in which Andy Murray, outside the tennis court, is a beacon for so many mm. people. Because it is against the backdrop of the ATP and the paucity of voices speaking up and supporting people who don't have those voices. I, I saw someone tweet something, and I'll retweet it later because I, I really want to give credit. Uh, she said that it's not often that you see men proclaim themselves feminist while they're being praised. It's often used as, as a defense while they're being criticized. So Andy Murray is someone who, while he is being complimented, like you said, he actually, his knee-jerk reaction is to say, wait a second, somebody else is not getting the credit they deserve. Like, that's his personality, right? And it's not something that's performative. Back in our first season, one of the first episodes that we felt really good about 
was one called Why Andy Murray's Feminism Matters. And that's something that if you're new to the show, we would encourage you to go back to and listen. It really explains the outpouring of affection for Andy in this very difficult time. Because he's appreciated for so much more than his achievements on the tennis court. If and when, and it looks like the when is coming soon, he does retire. We'll have lots of time to parse through his accomplishments on the tennis court. But what we wanted to do in this segment was to really celebrate why Andy means so much to a lot of people outside of tennis. A couple other thoughts from this news. I think it was Jane McManus. I saw a tweet about it uh, in the wake of all this happening last night that we take it for granted these days with so many advancements in sport medicine and rehabbing that whenever athletes have these horrendous injuries, think back to Paul George, he's having one of the, the best years of his career after breaking his foot, you know, in one of the more gruesome injuries you could ever see in sport. And he's able to come back from that. And, you know, I imagine like in the 90s, if you were to see that, it'd be like, well, damn, that's it. There have been so many advancements to keep players playing longer in their careers. And you just kind of assume that, well, he just needs a couple months off and then he will inevitably be back. But this is a reminder that, A, of of the stress and the, the rigors and the, the punishment that professional athletes at that high level put their bodies through. And it's not always the case that they can recover and it's sad. We are accustomed to professional tennis players being perpetually injured that mm-hmm. every player at this level is carrying at least one injury at every moment and of course it is previously unheard of that venus serena and roger are playing into their late 30s at this level 20 years ago people would have thought that ridiculous this is kind of a reminder that 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 stuff is not normal that's totally outside of what's reasonable <laughs> playing that well in your late 30s, and chalk it up to some bad luck for Andy. Seriously. I'm sitting there with this news last night, and I'm looking at Andy, and and I'm just stuck with his demeanor in that press conference and how gutted he was, right? Mm. And I'm thinking about his words and just sitting with it. And then I recall the words of the tournament director in D.C. last year. Because in the last in the last six to eight months, he's had a couple stops and starts, right? And I was trying to piece together, like, how is it that we've gotten to this place? Like, I thought we were making progress. And where along the way could we have seen signs? I'm thinking back to DC and that, that 3 a.m. win that he had in the round of 16. And how overcome with emotion he was just to be able to win, to be back on court. And in that time, it felt like, oh my God, like Andy, this means so much to him just to be back and playing. Now it seemed that he probably even then knew that this was one of his last moments, you know? And against that context, we're able to now look at the words of Keely O'Brien, who did... Oh, wow, we just name and names We name and names because she did not care for the fact that Murray was speculating that he would not play his next match. Mm. After having come back from the hip hip surgery, playing a three-hour match till 3 a.m. in the morning, she says, I hope that Andy really takes into consideration this role in his sport and as a global role model to guys and girls on the tour and kids around the world that when things are difficult and tough and the conditions aren't great, 
it's not okay to just give up. Jonathan, why are you trying to be messy like this? Because you're trying to make me laugh and say something rude. No, because I'm really, I'm really mad about it. I'm still mad about but it. But we were mad about it then. We were, when but we talked about but it. But now there's even so much more to be mad mm-hmm. about. I have to live in grace right now and say that I imagine that she feels a little cute about those words at this moment. That That's me being generous. I should damn well hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Who is going to fill the void that Andy will leave on the ATP tour when he's gone? Well, ask me now, as Jamaicans say. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. But look around. Do you see anyone like Andy Murray out there? Because I sure don't. Kevin Anderson is the only person. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Anderson, who is currently on the ATP Players Council, which voted to keep Gimmelstab, which voted Stakovsky back in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how Kevin himself voted, of course, not to cast aspersions, but it's got to be said. Who among the, the male players out there have the cut the bullshit approach that Andy Murray has? That he naturally defaults to. Like, who can get the heart, get to the heart of the matter? Like Andy. I, I don't know. Kevin Anderson just last night was at the latest LGBT tennis yes. event in Melbourne. Good on him because he he reached out to Nick McCarville in the summer when Nick was hosting that event in New York City. Nick has hosted another event in Melbourne and Kevin attended this time and participated. That's awesome. Point being, he's really the only one I can see. Right. Like, who's not consumed by PR, double talk? I don't know. It's it's going to be a, a grim time going forward as far as that's concerned, especially with all the upheaval that's happening on the ATP tour currently yes. and into the near yes. future. And that is something we'll touch upon later in the episode. Mm-hmm. Shall we get into Australian tennis things? Yeah. Because we have... Australia only has a month to show the world who they are. And they do it. The bush birds are a calling. <laughs> God, it's been so long. I forgot the words. That is so sad. The dawning of the day. Something D- about dick the, driven dick, s- the dick-driven spray. Dick-driven spray. Currently, this week in Australia and New Zealand, Tennis Sangren is in a final. Um, Jonathan, I recall only a mere five days ago, you said you couldn't wait until tennis becomes irrelevant. Until he was traipsing through the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so as we speak, he and Cameron Norrie from the UK are going on court for their final. And that is in Auckland. And as we speak, Sandgren is up a break for two in the first set. Okay, so great predictions. Thank you. Uh, Hey, you are not without fault here because (laughs) i had asked you in our listener mailbag uh one of the question was uh pick a player who if given a full bill of health for the year could really have the biggest impact on the tour and you picked andy murray i think we both did well that's a big if though and one week later we're staring down the barrel of his retirement so it's our fault and we're doing a Mm. terrible job a terrible (laughs) bang-up job yeah so moving on quickly from new zealand in Hobart, Anna Karolina Schmidlova is back in a final versus uh, Sonia Kennan. Those are two surprise finalists who can cause serious, serious problems in their part of the draw mm-hmm. in the Australian Open. Not a surprise for or or Pal and 
listener who we met in Cincinnati, Philip, who mm -hmm. told us Kenan was someone to absolutely look out for in 2019. And look, here we are already. Well, somebody whose predictions are better than ours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, we just have to laugh uh, because it's they're so tragically bad. <laughs> Down in Sydney. Talk about this is an amazing story this week. Ash Barty and Petra Gvidova have had incredible weeks. Yeah. They will meet in the final. Barty, after beating Ostapenko, number one Simona Halep, Elise Mertens, and then the Ertens twin, Kiki Burtons. The Ertens twin? Yeah. <laughs> Ostapenko, Halep, and Mertens all in straight sets fairly routinely, I might add, mm -hmm. before beating Burtons in three sets. And Co then Petra beating, I mean, Arena Sabalenka, who is everybody's favorite to be a shock, non-shock major winner this year. Then she beat Shea, Ann Kerber, and Sasmovich. Listen, just last week, I did not pick Kvitova to be my year in top 10. <laughs> I, I didn't either. <laughs> we both did? I felt she had too many titles to defend. <laughs> Although, know. but remember, she has, what, two first round losses at slams to defend? Yeah, That's like that is true. nothing in yeah. the slams. Um, you you, you got to imagine that she's going to show up for at least three to five events on the regular tour right. to play well. And then maybe a couple of slams. It really was short-sighted and quite stupid on our part. <laughs> well, you know, the year is not... It's only January. <laughs> I would love for Petra to be year in top ten. Right. And uh, in Sydney for the men, we got Andrea Seppi in the final. And he will play either Simon or Diemenauer. And I assume by the end of this recording we'll know which... Which is which? One of the questions that we got quite a bit in our mailbag, and we kind of put it off because we're going to be talking about talking about it at least somewhat tangentially with this little segment here, was about climate change in tennis. And related to that is, especially last year at the Australian Open and then at the US Open, where there were record temperatures and lots of talk about wet bulb global histrionics <laughs> you know, all manner of things playing conditions for players in in these extreme temperatures and how that affects the game going forward whatever what can be done the australian open has taken steps this year yet again a new new and improved heat rule yeah well this one actually does seem to have had some thought and work put into it yes because <laughs> from my understanding from doing the reading they were taking temperatures that weren't even on site last uh, year. I was like, yeah. mm -hmm. say what now? Um, that was news to me. That was crazy. Apparently, the the nearest weather station was at Olympic Park, mm -hmm. which is in uh, downtown Melbourne, I assume. And so <laughs> when folks are telling us, oh, you know, the temperatures, it's only 92, but on court, it feels like 100 and death. Okay. <laughs> They're taking readings from way over yonder. So, improvements. Uh, there will now be measuring devices on Rod Laver and Margaret Court. You're just... <laughs> you're so into... You know, I'm just in the mood. You the know, accent the, today. The Australian mood. Uh, the Australian Open is very good at branding. So they came out with this thing called the Australian Open Heat Stress Scale. The A-O-H-S-S. -S, I, <laughs> I have seen it abbreviated that way. Remember. Remember the acronym, people. A-O-H-S-S. -S. Yes. Anyway, they did research with the medical staff at Tennis Australia, with Sydney University staff. who Scientists. Are, yeah, exactly. Scientists 
in, I assume, meteorology and kinesiology and physiology and all that, they've come up with this, you know, it sounds complicated, but it, it is fairly straightforward. There's four climate factors. The f- first is radiant heat, which is heat from the sun. The second is air temperature, which is uh, like the temperature in the shade. The third is... <laughs> I can't take you seriously. <laughs> is relative humidity. You know what humidity is, Or right? as Patrick Vitova says, humidity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly that, yeah. And the fourth is wind speed. So obviously no wind is a problem if it's hot. And those four factors will decide at what level we're at. So there's a one to five rating based on those four factors and how they interrelate. The first level is no problem. It is temperate. You can play with no restrictions. At level four is when they introduce a 10 minute break after the third set in men's matches or after the second set in women's matches. At level five is where either they close the roof on the main stadiums or they suspend play on outer courts. So it seems straightforward. They're telling you how they are measuring the weather. The The measurement is a lot more complex. You remember we we did a lot of uh, Wikipedia-ing about what wet bulb globe temperature is last year versus a regu- you know, regular thermometer temperature. That was previously the main measuring tool. So what you're saying is that it's become a lot less opaque for the yes. average viewer. Yes, and I think... They heard people poking a lot of fun at them last year, but also a lot of people were angry and players were pissed off too. And they have taken steps to remedy that. They're trying to be transparent about how exactly they evaluate the weather conditions. Mm-hmm. And they're they're bringing a lot of different measuring tools into the fore. Something called a black globe thermometer. So look that up. We have another globe to learn. And like an ultrasonic tool, whatever that is, it measures wind speed, apparently. Mm. So, you know, this is 2019. We are in the new frontier. Listen, I appreciate when folks, when taken to task, they take steps. Mm -hmm. That's all we ask. Right. They're doing something. earnest, sincere steps. And I think we we have to give it a few days to uh, to see if it's responsive, to see if it works. Shall we move on to the draws? The, the reason we're all here. It is the one-year anniversary of Maria Sharapova carrying Daphne on court <laughs> in Serena's stead. You will not I let will not let go. that go. Like, who are you, me? I cannot let this go because it, it's high-key, but still mm. very low-key. One of the most fucked up moments of 2018 <laughs> that nobody's remembering. Stop. Nobody's remembering. That is, there are so many worse moments that have eclipsed <laughs> that. That it, you are so petty. You're behaving just like me. Okay. Okay. Eleven women. Eleven. One one. Once. Where are you going? Once mujeres mm-hmm. have a chance to be number one. <laughs> After the Australian yes. Open. That is wild. It, uh, we saw a graphic with the Australian Open points from last year vanquished from the rank- mm-hmm. rankings. And who is number two right behind Simona Halep? One, Sloane Stevens. Yeah. Uh, Sloane could legitimately take over number one during this tournament, provided she plays better than she has the past several weeks. 
this is Sloan now. Like, Sloan can do anything. Nothing mm-hmm. will be surprising. And she doesn't have a terrible draw, might I add. So it's it's possible. We have been perpetuating this cliche about dangerous floaters in women's draws for for basically years now. Since Serena Williams went on maternity leave and it seems like the tour went a bit topsy-turvy. That's only but, two years. Right. But that is year, several. More than one. <laughs> But for a couple of years, we have been doing draw previews for every major since then. And it seems like with Serena out, with Azarenka, her ranking outside of seeding territory, it, it's been a crazy several years. And uh, while I don't want to keep harping on this cliche about dangerous floaters, I think that it's not as dominant a part of the discussion this year. I think that things in the top 10 have gotten a little more clear. We have perennial top 10 players like Pliskova, Kerber, although she had a hiccup in 2017, Simona, Caroline, now Sloan and Naomi. I think there's a a tad more stability than we have had in a little while. Might I posit that the main reason for that is because Serena has a high seeding. Maria is seeded. A lot of these big name Mm -hmm. goat floaters... They've got little sections this time around. Right. They have a little bit of protection. But I still see a lot of dangerous floaters. And a lot of those are players who've had Grand Slam success in the past. Players who are young and green and unknown. We have people like Kennan. People like Kuzmova. We have uh, Kanta out here to play Mm Tomljanovic in the first round. She could do anything, really. That was a site of her big breakout a few years ago yeah. at the Australian Open. I hear you. I mean, I, I see Andreescu. I see in this section of hell, I see, like you said, Kenan, Buzarnescu, Kanepi, can Bouchard, Bachinski. Can I just call her Kenna? I just feel like... <laughs> Kenna Arden? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a hard time pronouncing it hard. Kenan. Let's just move on from that. I don't know why you're trying to make it dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take it from the top here. The women's top half, I think it's safe to say, is absolutely loaded. It is not rigged. We're not going down that road, but by chance, it uh, it's pretty wild. And interestingly, last year Serena, when she came back to the tour, was the dangerous floater. This time, her older sister, Venus, is the dangerous floater, not seeded, and who played a very good match against Azarenka, who played a less good match against Andreescu, but seems to have a new lease on life in 2019. I disagree with this categorization of the top half being that much more loaded than the bottom half. I think there's a fair bit of parity in this draw. Where it's loaded is the very top quarter. Yes, that is what's skewing it for me, for you, right now. <laughs> Starting from the, from the beginning, Simona Halep's nightmare continues. A second consecutive first-round matchup with Kaya Kanepi at a Grand Slam tournament. Mm-hmm. They are 1-1. One and one. Simona beat her, I think, back in 2014. Kaya shocked her at the U.S. Open this year, as we know. And Last year. Oh, sorry. La- yeah. Uh, about five months ago, I guess. <laughs> and Simona, because of her back injury at the end of 2018, has not won a match 
since Cincinnati. Mm. I know it's doing her a disservice to put it that way, but that is a fact. Still, she comes in the number one player in the world, Grand Slam under her belt, without a coach. Last year, she showed up without a clothing sponsor, wearing that fabulous red kit. Do you Mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah. Still probably my favorite kit of last year. And she's got questions about her again. And then she has to deal with this very tough section. The one caveat that we always add now when we're doing these draw predictions is that they almost always fall to shit. Exactly. The draws always almost implode. And dynamite could be just waiting around the corner here in this supposed toughest section of the draw. Right. So we shall see. In the meantime, we still do have to tell you, do our due diligence, that should Hala beat Kanepi, she gets potentially Kennen in the second round. Who is currently battling for the Hobart title. Mm -hmm. And then she gets either Venus or Cornet or or Buzarnescu Mm -hmm. in the third round before having to play possibly Serena Williams or, or... or if we were to continue going down the road of our predictions just destroying everything in 2019, Bouchard on her way to the final. Who knows? <laughs> or Peng Shui, who received a wild card. Mm-hmm. Or Diana Yastremska. Young and up-and-comer. Or Sam Stozer finally winning the Australian mm-hmm. Open. Who knows? Right. So in those that first little section, we have some pretty blockbuster first-round matches. Halep Kanepi. Buzanescu Venus, Stozer Yastremska. That's all in the same section. People who would play in the third round. And so the, the blockbuster there is potentially Serena Halep in the third round. Mm-hmm. In the fourth round, I should say. In the second section of that top half there, we've also got Kazatkina, who plays Bachinski in the first round. Tamea is back, really. Tamea has nine lives, and she can shock some of the best players at majors, mostly the French Open, but I would not count her out here. The aforementioned Kanta Tomlanovic match. Muguruza plays Sai Sai in the first round. You know, I think we have this idea that Muguruza has been struggling for a long time and that she's an, an upset alert perpetually. But if you look at her record over the last five months, she hasn't really lost to any shockers. She's lost to people who've gone on to have deep runs mm-hmm. or people who are up-and-comers. I think Yastremska was one of them. She lost to Wang Chang a couple times in the fall. Mm-hmm. It's not that she's she's playing stinkers, per se. And we know she's got the talent. Right. But plain and simple, Muguruza should not be ranked 18. It is, it's just uh, she has two majors and she can beat anyone. Mm-hmm. So get it together, girl. Pliskova, the one of the opening matches that I'm very much looking forward to. Pliskova playing Mohova. I had ah uh, yes, I Mohova had is her girl. as somebody to watch in 2019. Made her way through qualifying. That is one to watch. The other person in this little section who I think could be the spoiler is Camilla Georgie. Y'all might not be paying attention, okay. but Georgie's ranking is up there right now. Mm-hmm. Like she's top 30 playing some of the best ball of her career. And if she's firing on these fast hard courts, watch out. And if you recall a few years ago, I think it was 2015 when Venus started to have her resurgence. She had Venus against the ropes. Oh, Lord. In that match. Right. 
Because when Camila is firing, you cannot hit through her. But it just, sometimes it only lasts for a set. Mm -hmm. So if she has found a fountain of consistency, watch out. Of course, Karolina Pliskova is the recent winner in Brisbane. If she and Serena are winning, they could play each other in the quarterfinals. Also in this top half, Naomi Osaka, U.S. Open winner, Alina Svitolina, winner of the WTA Finals. We've got Elise Mertens, last year's semi-finalist at the Australian Open, who lost to the eventual champ Wozniacki. There's Wang Chong, who had an incredible run in Asia in the fall. Xie Suwe is in that section as well, playing well to start 2019. And she just loves Australia. And does anyone love what she does more than Xie? Like, is anyone, (laughs) is literally anyone having more fun mid-match than her? She hits shots and she laughs. And the whole stadium is like, oh, oh, I guess she just did that. We've also got Kuzmova in that section potentially playing Svetolina in the second round. That could be a big time upset alert match. Laura Ziegemont is going to play Victoria Azarenka in the first round. Ziegemont had that ACL tear. She's a former champ in Stuttgart. She's an absolute terror on clay. Hasn't really regained that form since the injury, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Which is to say, Vika has a couple of potentially very tricky opponents in the first two rounds. Mm -hmm. Zygamund and then potentially Shea. And that would would earn her the right to play Naomi Osaka, the reigning U.S. Open champion. Mm -hmm. And who wants to play her right now? I'm looking forward to a fourth-round match of Osaka versus Wang Chang. That could be a banner event for Asian tennis. Mm-hmm. Elise Mertens, like I said before, was the semifinalist here last year. I think that is actually easy to forget because she's not a super flashy player. She starts off against Schmidlova, which is a bit of bad luck because as a 12 seed, she's facing the finalist and uh, possible winner in Hobart. Buried in all of that is Madison Keys. I don't know what to say at this point to add to that. I don't know. I, Madison is there. It, it depends what kind of day it is, if she's hitting the lines, I, I don't know. The bottom half of the draw, what do we got going on? I would argue, and you're probably going to come after me, that there are fewer real title contenders on this half of the draw. You're correct. Mm-hmm. I will disagree with you, okay. but continue. I think there are some exciting potential matchups, and there are also a lot of, I don't want to say, I would say uninspiring Matchup. So you're coming at from a place of these are just players that you're not particularly <laughs> interested in watching. Is that what no, you're saying? No, not necessarily, because we have Sabalenka, we have Ash Barty, who's in the final in uh, Sydney right now, who's Kvitova. been playing some excellent tennis. Kvitova, Sloan, and Kerber, and Kerber. And my big wild card, Eula Gerges. Yes, who unfortunately for Ann Kerber would have to play her in the round of 16. Gerges coming off a win in Auckland. In Auckland. But starting at the top, Petra Kvitova has, if it all goes to seeding, has a reasonable match in the third round against Streetsova. The big barrier standing in Streetsova's way is Belinda Bencic, who, as you'll remember, beat Venus Williams in the first round here last year. Alicia Tsurenko, who lost to Pliskova in the Brisbane final last week, is the 24 seed, could face Arena Sabalenka in the third round. Before that, though, second run potentially against Anisimova. Also in that that little section there of the bottom half is the one that everybody's watching, Arena Sabalenko. So Kvitova 
potentially has a rematch with Sabalenka in the fourth round. She beat Sabalenka this week in Sydney. In straight sets. In straight sets. Uh, Kvitova is so unpredictable at majors, though. She could just as easily go out in the first round here. Just this week, folks were talking about, oh my god, she's so thin, she doesn't look as fit, what's wrong with Petra, what's going on? Here she's in the right. final. And she goes on a run like that and beats people who are real contenders for the Australian Open title. So I just, I do not know what to expect from Petra. She keeps it exciting. Ash Barty, she made the Sydney final last year. She's back in the final again this year. Was it last year that we had that fourth round match against Osaka at the Australian Open or third round match? And we're like, wow, this is definitely one for mm-hmm. the future. Yeah. Barty lost that match. Where is she this year in terms of the growth? Well, uh, she won Zhuhai this year. She's reached the Sydney final. She seems very comfortable playing in front of her countrymen and women. I think she has reached this place where she left tennis for a while. She's back. She's happy. She is steadily and slowly improving. You know, her ranking hasn't improved a whole lot over the past year, but she stayed steady and she got that big title at the end of the year. She plays a style that can be tricky for a lot of players. She's an excellent volleyer. She's creative. That backhand slice is gorgeous to watch. How long have we been doing this? I, I know, I know, I, I know. I, no, no, you're not, you don't even know where I'm going. Nope. <laughs> How long have we been doing this podcast for you to not know where what I was trying to set you up with there? <laughs> mm. It's about the difference. What is different about her? It's her confidence. The way she's actually talking about her game now. She's mm. like, I'm that bitch. I can beat y'all. Nobody, I fear nobody. I think she even said that this week. Which is a big deal for Ash Barty at this point in her career. Mm-hmm. If we're to look at, you know, reading the tea leaves as far as her the, the steps that she's taken in her right. in her career. She could play Ostapenko in the third round, whom she just beat 6-3, 6-3 in Sydney. Ostapenko actually starts against uh, Maria Sakari, which uh, I don't know. I don't know how to call that one at all. I think we're at the point where, yes, Yelena Ostapenko is a Grand Slam champion, but we have to potentially start looking past her until she does something mm. again. Because there are really so many women out there for us to True. be surprised by her potentially losing a first round match to Sakari, or even considering her the favorite in that match. Mm-hmm. And that's not even necessarily a knock on her. I'm looking forward to that Kvitova-Sabalenka match. And then Maria Sharapova against Caroline Wozniacki in the third round. Should Maria get there? Mm-hmm. Because we've Which, yet to see Maria string together a few matches. I think there are a, a lot of, there are a lot of ifs embedded in there. If Caroline gets there as well. Yes, that's how true. How she's feeling, how she's playing. But this is why I look to this half as potentially having... Well, actually, do not have the winner coming from this half, but why the winner could come from this half. Because we saw it last year with Wozniacki. There is literally a 50-50 probability that the... Whatever. (laughs) My point is, when you have a lot of folks being overlooked, when you have potentially more minefields in the draw, it may open up more and create more open spaces to the point where at the end of a grueling two weeks, somebody's more, more ready to do it. Right. Someone in that first quarter, especially, just might be worn the hell out. Mm-hmm. In the last quarter of the draw, it's headlined by Miss Sloan Stevens and Angelique Kerber. Sloan, what to make of Sloan? Uh, you know, we go through this every major. 
I, well, both of us are very clear that Sloane's form leading up to a major will basically indicate nothing. Mm-hmm. She could come through and win this Australian Open, and I would be 0% surprised. She could lose to Tara Townsend in the first round. I, I hope that she doesn't. I think she's an immense talent, and Sloane's going to get her due eventually. Was that in question? It is in question because I think they're. <laughs> I'm setting uh, you up here because we've right. had private discussions about this. We have been talking and about you're this. just dropping this little thing on the show without the context. Mm-hmm. And the Sloan Hive has been talking about why are other one-time Slam winners seen as kind of the next big thing, right? The next Serena, and clearly you know who I'm referring to here. <laughs> the air. It is wonderful that Naomi got a time cover. That is crazy. It's about time that women tennis players are recognized outside of Serena and Venus. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the thing that chafes is the idea that there is a next Serena. Yeah. And it's not about Serena because there is no next Martina. There's no next Steffi. There's no next Billie Jean King. Who is going to be a great player mm-hmm. that we can watch for? There's no this succession thing, this royal... Thing. But this idea that there should be almost a blurb on the time cover with Naomi thanking Serena for her having this position, <laughs> it's it's a bit laughable. Right. So my point is that Sloan has not received that sort of rapturous welcome from mainstream media mm-hmm. outside of tennis. I think the tennis press has a weird relationship with Sloan because she makes it a little, she's a little rough on him. They, and she's she's so hard to to read. She doesn't give a lot. I really don't think that this is a mystery. I've seen so many people going back and forth about this, trying to, like, what? what is the reason? Like, it's plain as day. How for you? What? Well, first of all, Sloan came up against Serena early in her career before she was fully accomplished. And there was that moment where she beat her. And then they had their own thing beside behind the scenes and in the press. Right. Sloan, I made you. Sloan had stuff that she felt was taken out of context, which then affected her relationship with the press. All this happening before she had her moment. Mm-hmm. Naomi's having her moment at twenty years old. Like she, everybody loves the ingenue, the starlet, the one who's going to be the next thing. At twenty four, twenty five, how old is Sloan at this point? Yeah, I think she's twenty five. At that age, it's you, you still have the majority of her career ahead of you if you want it. But you don't have that same sheen. What has taken some of that sheen off of Sloan and the way it's going to be presented in, in mass media, unfortunately for her, is everything that preceded it. And so, like, there's a way to go about succeeding Serena, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a way that we like to have it done by the press. But there's a game that you almost have to play if you are that person as well. Mm. And, you know, Sloan had some missteps, rightly or wrongly, done to her or done by her, right? Right. And so, like, all of that has muddied the the perception of her in the public's mind eye, I think. Mm. I th- and I think there's a few things going on. I Like, in the mainstream press, I think they really only have room for one or two black girls, period. Like, pardon the frankness, but I think outside of tennis, it's like Venus, Venus and Serena are one entity. They are one thing. There's this black girl. Who is the Williams sisters? Naomi is something different. And the way that a lot of people outside tennis view Naomi is she is uh, a victim of Serena in some ways. Sloane is is out here and people don't don't understand how to define her, Mm -hmm. how to see her. And then the other thing is that 
in like a man's world you can usurp you can take over the king you can slay the king and become him in women's and have sports, that be okay right have and, that be like yes you did what you were supposed to do. right and that's what's expected in women's sports it requires so much deference mm-hmm. sloan went about taking on serena in a way that people responded to negatively at the time as subtle as it was and there were only a few comments here or there in interviews and then the that's so disrespectful thing on court people don't respond to hostility from women in a very positive way there's also you said there's only room for one black woman there's also only room for one very black woman oh that's the other thing is that sloan is a dark-skinned black woman and uh as are the williams sisters right and we can't pretend that there isn't colorism at play here with mm-hmm. the way Naomi's being juxtaposed with the Williams sisters. Is, is Sloane getting a Vogue cover? Yeah. How many dark-skinned women have gotten stuff mm-hmm. like that? For as much as Serena has been lauded and is starting to, to reap some of the benefits of her hard work in the twilight of her career. Like becoming, becoming that cultural icon. Mm-hmm. You know, being accepted. She is still for, and we've talked about this, so many people, the angry black woman. She'll always be that. Even if you don't actively feel that, that's just an ingrained part of the juxtaposition with Naomi. And also what Naomi has in her corner is she has markets available to her that no 20-year-old has any business to have. Right, right. (laughs) You know, like, she has all of the Asian markets in her back pocket. Whereas Sloane's appeal is a lot more niche, shall we say. Let's be real here. When you're winning your first slam at the U.S. Open and you do it in such spectacular fashion after coming off that injury, Sloane didn't necessarily play the press game as well as she could have. <laughs> it's just not like, clearly not something that interests. It's her. not in, yeah, yeah right like she did like the the trophy stuff with the check and making mm. jokes, but in the micro scale with the interaction with the media, it's still very hostile. <laughs> For whatever reason, whether she feels justified or not and she very well could be you know like that's kind of irrelevant to the discussion that we're having now so like i feel that perhaps if if sloan were still willing to play the full media game the way that naomi is Mm. things could have been different for her even up to the point of winning the u.s open it's complicated i don't i don't want to present this as the full answer uh it's not it's not shocking there are a lot of reasons at play here Okay, we have to get back to the draw. That was a tangent. We have another draw to get to. Did we even finish talking about no, the No, we didn't. We didn't. The, so the rest of this fourth quarter, Kiki Burton's is an intriguing matchup in the fourth round for Sloan Stevens. Yulia mm-hmm. Gurgis, like you said, was the winner in Auckland last week, could face Angelique Kerber, who played a classic match against Simona Halep in last year's Australian Open semifinal. Went on to win Wimbledon. She's here to stay. She may not be a perennial champ, but three majors is not a hiccup. It is not a one-hit wonder. We don't even need to say that on this show anymore. (laughs) Right. For me, for Kerber, she's got a tough path. She gets to the third round. She has Donna Vekic, who you know I'm high on. Fourth round, she's got Gerges, and then potentially Sloane Stevens or Burton's in the quarterfinal before whoever presumably of those big hitters up top is coming Mm -hmm. out. So if she gets to the final, it's going to be well-earned. And then you've got uh, Sasnovich as a floater, one of those young, dangerous floaters in there. Say nothing of that first-round match between Monica Puig and Pavlyuchenkova. That's a first-round match that... <laughs> mm. 
I gotta just scroll there's right so, past Yeah, that. there's so many first row matches to watch that you could easily miss that. Mm-hmm. And then there's Miss Caroline Garcia, who is totally overlooked at this point because she yeah. hasn't been doing much. We didn't even mention the name. Donna Vekic plays Kristina Mladenovic in the first round. Their first round matches laden through the draw for you to watch. Anything you want to say as far as predictions, as winners or whatever? No. Nothing? You already established that we're utter shit with predictions. Okay. Maybe we'll revisit that on the mid-tournament episode. Okay. On to the men. All right. So we have a top half with Novak Djokovic. We have a bottom half with last year's champion, last year's runner-up, the Wimbledon runner-up, and last year's Roland Garros champion. Two of those people have are also, coincidentally, all-time greats. And also Tennis Sandgren. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I could be perhaps overstating the lopsidedness of this men's draw. No, but Yeah, because again, Novak's quarter is tough. Novak has a tough road. I would say that's a bit of an exaggeration. I... So let's let's go through it. Novak faces American qualifier Mitchell Kruger in the first round. Joe Songa could be waiting in the second round. We have Denis Shapovalov, David Goffin, Daniil Medvedev, a tough customer on hard courts to be sure. But is there anyone there who is going to really challenge Novak before the quarterfinals? I think Medvedev and Nishikori are tough outs for him to get to the semifinals. Yeah. Seriously tough outs. Yes, but Nishikori would be in the quarters. Shapovalov, if he fires, who knows? You're overlooking your boo Sanga. What are you doing? I mean, Joe Sanga is underestimating Joe Sanga. I'm just saying I've never heard you underestimate Sanga before. <laughs> You've always been the most optimistic person with I regard have, to Sanga. I have. I have picked him as the sleeper pick in the history of tennis many, many times. Yeah. Many times. Even when it was unreasonable. But every time it was unreasonable. But to get <laughs> that's ridiculous. But to get through Novak Djokovic in the second round is damn near impossible. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Fabio Fognini is the 12 seed. He won three titles last year. Pablo Carreño Busta, he could face in the third round. Nishikori has a pretty clear shot to the quarterfinals. I don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but there are not a lot of huge obstacles in Barring this way. sweltering heat, barring a physical breakdown. Right, but we now we have four climate factors and five steps on the oh Australian God. Open heat stress scale. What you're talking about with the lopsidedness here, this is the quarter below that where stuff gets a little bit wide open. Yes. Sasha Zverev is leading this quarter as the number four seed, coming off that win at the ATP World Tour Finals. He faces Alias Bedenay in the first round. Jack Sock could be lurking, winner of that reciprocal wild card between Tennis Australia and the USTA because he did not get into the Australian Open based on ranking. Mm-hmm. And speaking of middling Americans, Tennis Sangren has just won Auckland. Uh, cool. 6-4, 6-2 cool, over Cam cool, Nori. Cool. I wonder if Glenn Greenwald was there to celebrate with him. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, my wor- my stars! <laughs> Jack Sock, again. Why are we still talking about Jack dangerous, Sock? <laughs> dangerous floater. Oh my God. Labor is... Cup MVP. <laughs> Gilles Simon uh, could meet Zverev in the third round as well. Yun Chung, your 2008 
semifinalist. 2008. 18? Time flies. <laughs> Your 2018 semifinalist who beat Novak Djokovic last year. Chung has been doing nothing. Expect an early round upset from, from oh. him there. Oh, Lord. I'm just trying to speed through this because you're up here like doing like the most color, talk about people who commentary. don't need to be talked about. <laughs> okay. Let's get to the blockbuster. Nick Kyrgios, Milos Raonic, first round. Yes. Nick says he's healthy. He's in a good place mentally. This could be wild. And if he does win, whoever, Raonic or Kyrgios, they potentially play Stan Wawrinka in the second round because Stan opens up against Ernest Gulbis, one of my comeback players, mm -hmm. resurgent player picks for this year. So those two matches back-to-back -back in the draw section there are humdingers to watch. Right. Like, is that the toughest little section in the entire draw? In the early part. The most complicated. In the early part, yes. yes. Uh, at the bottom part of that top half there, you've got Dominic Team playing Benoit Pair. And frankly, you know, folks are talking about, oh my god, that's so unfair. It's such a tough match. Dominic should win that match. He should. However, he lost his first match in Doha to Herbert. Yes, my point is, if he doesn't win, it's on him. Like, he's got the talent, whatever, blah, blah, blah. The, the talent discrepancy between those two is vast, is my well, point. And the, yeah, I mean, half the time Pear is kind of dicking around on court. Yeah. Borna Chorich is on the other side there. We gotta, I don't know if you mentioned this before, but we gotta state too that we've been hearing reports that Zverev is injured. So yeah. that also... There's an ankle issue. That opens things up even more so in that section. On the bottom half, we've got Marin Cilic as a six seed. He opens against Benny Tomic. I, I mean, that should not be a problem for Chilich, but who knows? Bautista Agut, he plays Andy Murray. That is going to be the match of all the matches in the first round on both draws, both tours, that everybody will be watching. Yeah, Bautista is in good form. He just won Doha. He's the 22 seed here. Some of the British journalists have prognosticated that this could be Andy Murray's last match as a professional tennis player. I think that is well premature. Murray could win that match, first of all. He, he's still playing. He hasn't withdrawn mm -hmm. from the tournament, right? Like, he is here to play. And he could play matches at the French. He could play at Wimbledon. We have no idea. I, I just, we're not ready to make that, that statement yet. But still, in light of everything that's happened, this is something that everyone should watch. Absolutely. Also, in that little section, we have John Millman, who beat Roger Federer at the U.S. Open. Karen Hachanov is the 10 seed, could face Chilich in the fourth round. There's Verdasco lurking. Andre Rublev, who has been talked about as one of those leading talents of the next gen. He's unseated at the moment. He's going to face Mackie McDonald in the first round. You're not talking about anything I want to talk about. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? We're in like about? totally different wavelengths. Nishioka against Sandgren. That is the match ah. where Nishioka hopefully will have us all remember his name for doing the Lord's work. Mm -hmm. When I see Sandgren, I just move on, which is mm -hmm. why I missed Nishioka. Tsitsipas and Berrettini in a very pretty first round. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of smizing mm -hmm. in that first round yes. match. Christopher Eubanks qualified is into his second ever slam main draw. He defeated King Felix in the second round of qualifying. He also practiced with Serena Williams. 
mm-hmm. today in Melbourne. Cam Norrie, opening match to watch, plays Taylor Fritz. Both those men have been playing well recently. Steve Johnson gets Andreas Seppi. That will suck for him because I fully expect Seppi to win that match, mm-hmm. have the upset. Mm-hmm. Dan Evans is back. He qualified for this tournament. John Isner and Riley Opelka in the first round. Yes, one of those uh, like record-tying tallest matches ever, rivaling the Karlovich-Anderson match recently. Riley Opelka is now in the top 100. Mm-hmm. He finished the year in the top 100, I believe, for the first time. One of the first-round matches that not just a big-name match on paper, but one that might actually deliver the quality, Berdick and Edmund. Oof, this is, this is rough on our Kyle. Kyle lost his first match in Brisbane, Thomas Berdick is back from injury, and got all the way to the final in Doha. They're on uh, sort of opposite trajectories at the moment. Janko Tipsarovic still plays. Did hmm. you know that? I, uh, I was reminded of that. He has this week. taken time from his busy schedule of hating women and reading philosophy <laughs> to play tennis. <laughs> and uh, visiting eyewear stores. Exactly. The top part of that bottom half, Chilich, the, the main dog there, along with Federer. Would we be surprised to see Federer Chilich in that quarterfinal? Tsitsipas might have something to say about that, as might, mind you, Basilashvili. That is true. Winner of two 500 tournaments last year, Karen Hachanov may have something yes. to say about that. So those are the five guys from that quarter there that I think you mm-hmm. should be paying attention to. In the final quarter, Nadal has all the Australians in his little section. <laughs> yes. He plays Duckworth to start, then he could play Matt Ebden in the second round, then Alex Diminar in the third round. Mind you, Ebden has all the strength of Our Lady Margaret Court behind him. <laughs> you never know. So on paper, Nadal's draw to the quarterfinal is not that difficult, on paper. Mm-hmm. However, we know that Schwartzman is somebody that's given him some fits in the last couple of years. And Nadal hasn't had much match practice. He hasn't been on court in high-intensity situations, so he's going to need to if healthy, play himself into this tournament. Mm -hmm. And he firmly believes, and we should believe him, that if he's able to do that, if he's able to get to the second week still healthy, he could do things here. Yes. We we know now that the fast court is not a hindrance for him in Australia. He can give a more than good account of himself on a fast Mm -hmm. court. It's just a matter of, can he physically hold up on on the surface? Has he had enough time Mm -hmm. To recover, to get himself into fighting shape, to do this. For me, I see Kevin Anderson as the the most likely to reach the final in this half. I have Kevin Anderson winning the tournament. Are you serious? I do. I thought I was being out of the box here. No. I... <laughs> no, you, you were not. <laughs> so over over Federer and Chilich in that half, you think that Anderson will make it through? Yes. I mean, I, okay, I agree. I mean, and Nadal as well. Mm-hmm. We are past the point of... Kevin Anderson being an overachiever. Hmm. He is somebody who has achieved. He's made and two slam finals. A lot of and who is talent. still improving. And uh, this is the type of surface that should help him. If he gets cooperation from the weather, this, this could be his time. Hmm. All right. Before we go, we should talk a little bit about what's happening in ATP leadership at the moment. It seems like constant drama in the governance of men's tennis lately. 
We have heard report that Justin Gimmelstab has flown the coop. He's in Australia. He's boarded a plane. <laughs> I didn't know they would let him in. What? Can you let somebody Jonathan, in who's who has a record? Jonathan, what? He does not have a record yet. Oh. Innocent until proven guilty. Mm. Don't you remember all these due process bros out here? I thought you could read the Constitution. I thought you couldn't like go places because you might never come back no, I, and escape i don't think he's considered a flight risk because he is a, a public figure you know oh, okay. people know who he is but i mean australia could reject him just saying this is true the point is that the atp will be holding a vote on the future of chris kermode's tenure as the uh, president and ceo of the atp his contract ends in 2020 the board of directors is now going to vote on whether they will extend the contract. Mm -hmm. Allegedly today, Saturday, he's having meetings with the Players' Council. Or there's some... Who's he? Chris or Justin? Justin. Like There's okay. some meeting going on between the, the board representatives for the players and the council and whatever to like get their house in order as to what they're going to do. And then sometime later this month, they're going to vote on Kermode. Mm -hmm. That's my reading of the situation. Am I right? Yes. Okay. The Telegraph, Simon Briggs reported that they were set to vote Saturday, today. That's what I thought at uh, first, but then I read that okay. it might not happen until later on. All right. We're going to get news about this one way or the other very yes. soon. Hopefully this recording is not too outdated by mm -hmm. the time it reaches your and ears. And Gimmelstab is going to play, as Simon Briggs let us know in his article earlier this week, a pretty big part in how this shakes out. Right. Because in order for Kermode to retain his position, there are six board members, three of them representing tournaments and three of them representing the players. He needs two of the player representatives to vote for him, as well as two of the tournament representatives to vote for him. Right. Now, it seems, as it was explained in that piece by Simon Briggs, that historically, throughout his five-year tenure, he's been Kermode has been viewed as more player friendly than tournament friendly but we're at a point now where the roles are flipped where the tournaments are happy with him want him to stay but it's the players or a certain section of players i should say who are very well represented mm. within the council and the board who might not allow that to happen and gimmelstab i'll let you explain how he plays a big role in that right simon briggs gave us a confirmation that the ATP Players Council did vote about the Gimmelstab situation and decided to keep him on the board of directors. And just a, a little review about how the governance structure works. The board of directors has six members, plus Chris Kermode is the seventh as the president. Three of those members represent tournaments. Three are elected by the Players Council to represent players, theoretically. Then you have the Players Council which is made up of mostly active players. I think there's also a retired player representative on there and uh, like an extra person. And, you know, this is people like Novak Djokovic, who is the current president of the Players' Council, Kevin Anderson, Stefano Travaglia just left and was replaced by Sergei Stokowski. So the Players' Council is totally separate from the ATP board of directors, but they, they are able to vote members onto the board. So that's and that. those members are in turn expected to represent their best interests. Right. I mean, it's like they're congressmen, right? However, we have this being explained to us by Simon Briggs that these three uh, player representatives on the board, they they have Kermode's fate in their hands. And Gimmelstab, yes. 
we've been told now for a while is gunning for Kermode's right. job. So we have we know that Gimelstab has designs on the president of the ATP. Mm-hmm. He's got his tennis channel lackey <laughs> beside okay. him. So check this rundown. Of the three members on the board who are player representatives, we have Justin Gimelstab, who has been accused multiple times of violence, who is currently charged with felony assault, and we know everything he said publicly about women and gay people and etc. So we got that. David Edges, who is a temporary board member filling in after Roger Rashid was sacked. David Edges is the former senior vice president of Tennis Channel, mm-hmm. which how you can represent players after being the SVP of Tennis Channel, I don't know. It escapes me. Then we have Dominic Inglot, who was the former director of communications at a betting company. Hmm. So you know how Ariana says, one taught me love, one taught me. <laughs> so one taught me violence, <laughs> oh my God. one taught me conflicts of interest, and one taught me avarice. Corruption. <laughs> Sorry for being so flippant, but the, the mere idea that these three figures, aside from who they are as human beings, who, what they represent, that they speak for player interests is laughable. No thank you, I have, next. I have to laugh. So timed with this potential vote over Chris Kermode's contract renewal is a bit of an open letter from Vashek Pospisil. Mm-hmm. You know, he made points. He made some points. It's almost as if it was a decided, concerted effort not to use the word union. Because you said everything about unions without labeling it itself. It's frustrating. It's like when somebody is clearly a feminist, but they refuse (laughs) to call himself a feminist. There's a lot in there in what he wrote. You know, he said, we need legal advice. We need legal representation. Okay. We need a CEO who is fighting for us. That will never happen. That's not how companies work. No. We need... They're here to make money for them. Yes. We need a basically a concerted public relations effort. Those are things that come with unionization. So when you unionize, you have access to lawyers. You can shape the, the sort of public discourse of your position. All of these things are not going to come from hiring a CEO who is sympathetic to players because a CEO is inherently not going to work in the best interests of his or her employees. No, I mean, they may give you a That's slighter, what... <laughs> a slightly bigger cut of the pie to appease you. Right. But this is not this is not how this works. I get where Vashek is coming from, that players should have a bigger piece of the revenue from Grand Slam tournaments, especially, which make incredible revenues every year and decline to release their financial statements that's the kicker that was really important what he talked about just how opaque the whole thing is in terms of the money that's actually being made you don't really know what the pie Mm -hmm. is and what your cut actually is specifically you have an idea so that i agree with but what i don't agree with is the idea that the atp is somehow going to be the savior that that ends this corruption on the ITF level. I think you're trading, you know, you're trading one dictator for the next. The only thing that's going to break this up is what they have in the NBA, NHL, MLB, 
a bunch of other sporting leagues is players associations, which are unions. I don't know logistically how that even happens in tennis because they're that technically is what the ATP is by by name. It's oh, an association. Right, an association. <laughs> but an associate association headed by a board. No, I'm that, I'm being an ass. Yes, I, I know, know what you mean. But that represents in equal parts tournaments mm. and players. Yeah. And the frustrating thing is that the representatives who are supposed to speak for players also work for television channels or work for tournaments in some cases or work for companies that profit off of tennis in other ways. They don't it's not an organic player representation. No. And so how are you going to expect these three player representatives to have your complete best interest at heart when they have all these other competing interests that they're going to want to then satisfy need feel the need to satisfy or you know work to further their own self-interest in the case of Gimelstab. Mm-hmm. And uh Vashlik said something <laughs> that was kind of troubling. He's saying all these things that need to be done and he said but at least now we have good representatives on the board. Right. Like now we have the board we want. Say what? Like, you have Oh, really? You have <laughs> you have Gimelstab who is gunning for the job, his buddy who is likely to vote with him just because. And then as described by Sam and Briggs this other guy, Inglot, who is so new and green to the thing that he just kind of like, okay, I'll see what's going on and, and follow suit. Like, where's the actual, like, gnarly, gnashing the teeth, biting at the bone, I'm I'm fighting for you people, mm-hmm. you know, specifically and only for you. Like, this is not what this setup is. And so there's a lot of, of bait and switch. There's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of keeping the player's eyes off the prize and this is not even to speak of (laughs) the fact that women are completely incidental to this conversation the idea that women could be part of a joint players union is not on the table is absolutely verboten as far as the atp goes the fact that women do generate a lot of the revenue at the grand slam level is is not something that's discussed so men's players were organized on their own to get their you know rightful piece of the pie women are kind of left out to dry mm-hmm. are they are they invited to join this theoretical player not union but uh initiative uh, what's group team uh, i mean what sort of double speak are we using here they refuse to use the word union but uh and even sentiment. Are women invited to join the sentiment or the call? <laughs> no. So that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. That's something we absolutely <laughs> probably will be talking about on the next two episodes. Because it's it's going to be very newsworthy. Mm. And it, it sets up the, the future of the ATP and tennis in general for the next few years. This is very important to the superstructure of tennis moving forward. Right. Especially in an era in men's tennis that will be without the the big four. Point is, uh, as fans of tennis, like not only as commentators, as people who care about the future of the sport and the people who play it, what sort of organization is the ATP going to be going forward? Their choices now leave me with a lot of pessimism, but who do they want to be? Who is the sport for? When we ask why is there no openly gay player on the ATP, we can see the answers everywhere in the personnel choices. I I have dreams of tennis of being more inclusive, more accessible 
and I don't see the way forward mm. all the time. I'm not a cynic, but I want to see tennis move forward in a different way. So that's something to keep in mind in January 2019. Mm-hmm. I do want to make a correction from earlier in the episode along the lines of us like fucking things up <laughs> already so early in the season. With our predictions, I think I'd said that we were responding to a, a listener mailbag question about a player, if healthy, mm-hmm. they could change the landscape. Yes, we did answer Mori, but the one that I really wanted to say in that moment and to throw you under the bus, and I didn't quite grasp it at the time, mm-hmm. was when it wasn't actually a question. It was just something you had posited. You said that you suspected, and this is in keeping with this whole tenor of the changes coming on the ATP tour in in the near future that we're going to have some big retirements by the u.s open mm-hmm. and I, I don't think this is what we had in mind with andy i did say that i take no pleasure in it whatsoever i think there there could be more to come unfortunately are we going to talk about patrick's coach now no we this episode is way too long i Quickly, i said briefly, i wanted patrick Maratoglu to be a less central part of our lives in 2019 and what did we get this week? what did we get we got an app brought to you by Patrick Moratoglu about how to build an academy and coach a player to success. Success. Can you imagine a more boring game? <laughs> a sport <laughs> management game? What? I mean I was I was a sport right? management student for a um, while. It is not for me, obviously, but I can't really imagine playing it as a game in my leisure. Yeah, but time. it's also about coaching as well. How to coach the player. It's I did not know there was a market for this. I don't know. Did not. Maybe this is something that will make him boatloads of money mm-hmm. because he has found his niche. Right. I don't know. But he has Stefano Tsitsipas out here shilling it because he's part of the academy. Well, I mean, I'm sure Serena's bankrolling Stefanos is shilling as well. Let me tell you. you no, know, if it's a paid sponsorship, I'm sure it's income generated by Serena Williams. too far would be if Serena promotes this shit because she don't got time for that shit i'm just she saying really doesn't. that's when we know that he ain't going anywhere <laughs> that we're well, just stuck with this madness if that happens forever. there is some seriously serious hypnotism going on on that note thanks for listening to our episode thanks for bearing with us at the start of the episode with or andy stuff we had to talk through some things mm-hmm. there i hope it wasn't too much of a downer I hope it was a little bit cathartic for you. We're looking forward to the Australian Open. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for tennis. Reach out to us on Twitter at TheBodyServe or individually. Uh, I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. He is Jonathan. At Tennis underscore John. Mm -hmm. Vince the Beagle is our mascot. You Mm -hmm. can find him on Twitter as well. He's aging gracefully. (laughs) He's He's about to complete his 12th year. He's a senior dog, unfortunately. He's sleeping on the couch mm-hmm. now, unbothered. You can find us on Instagram as well, at the Body Serve, and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you find us from. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.